see all of you guys. If you're one of our guests, we want you to know that you're most welcome. If you're joining us online, thank you for joining us there. Um, and if you have not already, make plans to, to join us next weekend after the service. We're going to have a 4th of July party here at the church. Um, and, uh, and we're providing a bunch of food for that, and so we need head counts on people. So if you can get online and sign up on Church Center, all you have to do is give us a head count. You can do that on the Church Center app or go to the website and get there, get there that way. Um, and this morning we're going to celebrate communion together. So if you have made it in the room without getting um, communion elements, they're on the table there in the back, in the middle, and you can go in and, uh, and, go and get those right now. Otherwise, um, let's stand together and we'll get started.
Okay, you guys can have a seat. This week we had kids camp here at the church, and our kids are going to come forward, and our student workers, kids, student workers are going to come forward. Kids and students. Kids and students are going to come forward. At this time. And they're going to share with you guys a song that they learned this week. Next week, it's going to be the adults doing that. 
you guys stand up with us?
Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the life that we have because of him. And as we celebrate him this morning, we pray that you would be honored, that you would draw us near. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. We're going to celebrate communion this morning, which is one of my favorite things to do. Um, I, was, I, uh, I, I was fortunate enough, I, I sometimes rag on the church that uh, I grew up in so much that I need to say something positive from time to time. And uh, one of the things that we did that I loved was this, in taking communion together. Um, and if you have one um, like mine, uh, you got two, two openings on the top, and if you, if you got a gluten-free one, um, you got two different packages. So be careful when you open that uh, you get the one out you want out at the right time. But <clears throat> we celebrate an open communion here at Conroe Bible Church, which just means uh, that if you have trusted Christ, you are welcome to participate with us. Um, and we would love for you to. And if you have not trusted Christ, I'd encourage you to do that simple faith in him at his word. And, uh, and then you can share with us um, in this worship. And uh, parents, if you would um, please oversee the, uh, the worship of your children through our, our time of communion. I wanted to share with you uh, quickly um, the passage that we usually reference out of 1 Corinthians when we, when we do communion together. It ends with this verse. It's, it's chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. That it says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And uh, we, in doing this, we're pro we are proclaiming his death. And uh, I think a good question that we, we might could ask is why? Why proclaim his death? Which is a hard question to answer if you don't know why he died in the first place. Um, which turns out to be a moment in my life of particular significance. Um, when, I, when I tell somebody about my relationship with God, about my life as a Christian, and when I saw my life begin to change, it's usually paired with some statements that go like this. When I started becoming honest with myself about me was when I started seeing my life change. And one of those first moments happened to be a moment of communion. And it was the first time that these thoughts ever ran through my head, why are we proclaiming his death? Why did he even die? And I know the answer, just like you know the answer, he died because the world's full of sin, has a sin problem that needs to be solved, and he's the only one that can do it. That's why we proclaim his death. But I was asking a different question. Why am I proclaiming his death? And why did he have to die for me? And that's a question that when you're honest with yourself about, you see the reason Jesus died was because I needed somebody. I needed somebody to do something for me that I couldn't do. And I had spent most of my life at this point, I'm old enough now, I gotta stop saying that. I had spent less than half of my life trying to do that for myself thinking that all the effort I was putting in, all of the good things, the few good things I managed to conjure up, that those somehow were, were worth something. Paul says those things are dirty rags. 
My life began to change in a moment of communion when the thought crossed my mind that Jesus did this for me. Yes, he did it for the whole world. But the entire story of scripture seems to indicate that God wants a more personal relationship than just him and the world. He wants all the way down to you. These thoughts are what ran through my mind. <clears throat> he gave himself up for me. If only a, if, if, you know, a, a group of soldiers came to take him away, but he would have walked over there willingly with, with a child had he been led to the cross. He wanted to go for my sake. It was the first time that that thought had ever crossed my mind. And I wonder if, if you in our time of communion this morning think that personally about God. He loves you. We proclaim his death together as a family because he loves you. Because he died for you. He gave up his life for you. We proclaim his death because we're looking forward to him coming back for us, for me, and for you. So you can open the uh, top portion if you're like mine or the uh, extra package and uh, take out the bread. I'll read here from uh, 1 Corinthians. It says, For I received from the Lord that which, also, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. started before I told you guys to, but you can open the other one now. Didn't know how it was going to work with the microphone. And I'll continue here in 1 Corinthians. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, together we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning, for this worship that we can have of just remembering, of remembering that you came for us, that you gave yourself for us because you love us. Father, I pray this morning through our worship, through our learning, that we would draw even nearer to you that our hearts would be changed because we find grace, we find love in your son. Teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you are one of our kids, K through five, you can be dismissed to Sunshine Kids Club. If you're one of our guests, feel free to go with your kiddo and get them checked in, and uh, then you can come back and join us.
Before we look to God's word, I want to uh, thank everybody that was serving this week. Uh, the last word I was given was like 60 to 65 uh, children. Uh, how? 75, okay. And 30 plus uh, teachers and helpers. So thank you guys for making that possible. Parents, thanks for bringing your children. Thank you guys for bringing the gospel uh, clearly and for loving on these children and for everybody that was involved at some level uh, making that happen. That was, it was an exciting, uh, exciting time. And I got to stick my head in a couple of times when uh, things were all chaotic and it was just a beautiful thing. I also want to let you know uh, by way of some church family news that uh, we have begun a search for our children's director. And uh, as you uh, realize, Mary uh, Craig has moved to West Texas. Our um, children's ministry is all uh, plugged up, all uh, secure for the summer. Everybody that uh, was had already committed is, is staying with it. And I very much appreciate you teaching uh, every, everything and, and caring for our infants and toddlers and, and then caring all the way up through our elementary. And, uh, but we did want to let you know that we have started that uh, search and we'll kind of give you updates along the way. We're using a national search firm uh, to help us in the process. Uh, and we would like to look for a full-time person to replace uh, Mary as part-time children's director uh, because of where the Lord has us and uh, because of uh, where we think he is leading us. So I want to invite you to pray with us in that process. Let's pray now and then we'll leave this word. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for the privilege of proclaiming your death through this act of um, communion. We thank you that we can do something physical and tangible and uh, remember you and the sacrifice the, the, that you made as a sinless substitute on our behalf. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, that's not all uh, that you have done for us, but that you continue to offer us your life moment by moment as we live by faith in you. And we ask uh, that you would give us uh, great direction and wisdom and insight and that you would lead just the right person here to continue to serve and minister our children and to build on what uh, Mary has established here. Thank you for our teachers, both for this past week, teachers and helpers and leaders and, and admin and, and uh, kitchen and everything else. Thank you for all those that are serving our children these Sundays through the summer. I pray that you give them strength, great insight into your word and love for the children. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. I had the craziest dream this week. I dreamed that I had died and arrived in heaven. And uh, just like in the cartoons, St. Peter met me at the pearly gates there. And uh, he, he said, welcome, we're glad you're here. And I said, uh, thank you, I've, <laughs> I've longed to be here. 
forever. And uh, this is very exciting. And, and Peter said, well, what would you like to do? And I said, well, could you give me a quick tour of uh, heaven? I'd like to see you know, what it's like here. So he did. He, he showed me the, the streets of gold and the crystal river. And he, he asked me if I knew what that light was in, in heaven. And, uh, and then he took me to this area of just like a climate controlled storage area. And he opened the door and it just seemed to go on for acres and acres and acres. And, and what it was was shelves with these kind of round clock-like faces with 60 marks around the edges, didn't have 12 numerals, and it didn't have a short arm, but it did have a long arm, a long black arm. And so I said to, to Peter, what is this? And, and he said, well, this is what we call uh, sinometers. Uh, these are measuring devices for sin. Uh, we have one up here for everyone on earth. And, uh, and, and so we just kind of you know, it, it ticks for each sin, each time they commit a sin, and the computer records it, and then we have it for judgment day if we need it. And, um, and I said, that, that is just uh, fascinating. Uh, could you take me to uh, my former staff members, Conroe Bible Church <laughs> staff members? And, and so he did, you know, it seemed like we walked a mile or two down these aisles and we turned left and we turned right. And, and finally he says, it's on that shelf over there. And I, I look over there and there's this really dusty clock face sitting there and I, I wipe off the nameplate and it says Elizabeth Brown. And, and I said, Peter, why is this thing so dirty and so dusty? He said, well, that, that girl is pursuing godliness. It only ticks about once every three weeks. And I said, that sounds like Elizabeth pursuing godliness. And, and then I looked right next to it. There's Matt Ward's. And even as I turned to look at it to the left of Elizabeth's, uh, it ticked, you know, just. <laughs> and, and so I said to uh, uh, Peter, well, how often does Matt's tick? And he said, it's about once an hour. And I said, ooh. <laughs> And he said, no, really, he's showing progress. So I thought, <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. And, uh, and then to, to the left of Mass, there's a blank space. And I said, uh, Peter, I don't see Chris Craig's, our, our worship pastor. Has he already joined me up here? And uh, Peter says, no, no. Uh, Chris Craig's, Jesus has it in the office. He's using it for a fan. Well, today we're going to talk about temptation <laughs> so that your sonometer in heaven won't be working like a fan. And obviously sin is no laughing matter. And that's why God gives us these examples and gives us biblical principles on how to deal with sin. And we see that throughout scripture. Now, obviously, we can go to Ephesians 6 and we can look at the spiritual armor of God and we can uh, think about even there, we're talking about uh, being in moment by moment prayer with God and things like that. But today I want to look at Joseph, a man of faith in the book of Genesis. So if you want to turn with me to, to Genesis 39, we're going to look at a man who was also a dreamer, but uh, his dreams, God gave him to tell him about his future and to put a calling on his life that he would rule one day. And uh, 
foolishly or not, he shared that with his family, and that didn't go over real well. But Joseph wasn't just a dreamer. He was a man of integrity, a young man of integrity. In fact, when we look at his life today, he's probably early 20s. Uh, by the time this episode takes place in his life. And what we're going to see is a, a man who models for us how to resist temptation through biblical convictions. As we look at his life, at the episode of temptation in his life today, it is sexual sin. And, and so we could say that that applies to every one of us, right? Right? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, abstain from all sexual immorality. So that applies to you and me every day of our lives. We are immersed in a sexual culture. Sexual impurity, sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage. Everything about our culture points towards sexual immorality. And so we could look at that and say every one of us deals with that at some level virtually on a daily basis by the way that uh, we are assaulted with these thoughts and these attitudes and these actions and certainly the media and all that it provides. But I want you to think bigger than that because you may be in a season of life where that's not as important for you or not as tempting. And I want you to realize that the principles here, and, and I think you'll see that as we look at Joseph's life here in Genesis 39, uh, apply virtually to all kinds of temptation, to everything that we deal with. And, and the key, again, is that we can resist temptation with spirit-filled convictions. We can have biblical convictions, and they're best if we prepare beforehand. So turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 39, that verse, first book of the Bible. And in verses 1 through 6, we're going to look at uh, Joseph's life, and, and we see that God's servant often receives God's blessing. And I want to change that word often to always. Uh, I don't know why I put that in there, but... Maybe just to be able to say this and, and make you think about it. I want to change it to always because we always experience God's blessing. I already mentioned that God has long-range plans for Joseph. He has long-range plans that will have him ruling that will actually protect the nation of Israel. God blesses Joseph in the midst of some terrible circumstances that we'll see in these first six verses and what I want us to see is that there's a, there's a key spiritual truth here that temptation can come at any time, even when things are going good, even when we're experiencing God's blessing at a high level. Because that's true in Joseph's life here in verses 1 through 6. Let's start with verse 1. We'll get a little bit of context. We'll get reminded in case you've forgotten some of the details of Joseph's life. Verse 1 says this, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar... An Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, that's essentially the secret service, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Genesis 39.1. Joseph was the victim of human trafficking. He had been betrayed and then sold by his brothers 
to some Ishmaelite traders. They were out uh, beyond Shechem, I think in Dothan, and, and they were uh, just watching the sheep. Jacob, his father, had sent him to check on them. There's a lot of reasons that they don't like Joseph, and a lot of them start with Jacob's love of Joseph. And so they uh, sell him off, thanks to Reuben. They wanted to kill him, but Reuben saves his life. They sell him off to these traders, and those traders take him to Egypt. When he goes on the auction block, then Potiphar buys him, and Potiphar just happens to be captain of the bodyguard. We're elsewhere that he's chief of the executioners. So this is a very high-ranking official uh, to Pharaoh in Egypt, and this is possibly, most likely, uh, the scholars, the historians tell us that this is the Pharaoh Sesostris II. He served from about 1897 BC to 1879. And this is about the time that Joseph shows up, somewhere around 1898, 1897 BC. Joseph remains a slave to Potiphar and he has no family. And so we wonder what kind of life did he live? Well, we get to see right here in verses two to six that Joseph was abandoned by his family but he was not abandoned by God. He was not abandoned by God. None of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ are ever abandoned by God. He is always on the pursuit. He is always present with us. His strong heritage, Joseph goes back to his great-grandfather, Abraham. So Abraham gets called by God, chosen to lead this country to come out of Ur and then to start this nation of Israelites. And then his son, which is Joseph's grandfather, is Isaac. And then his son, which is Joseph's father, is Jacob. So that's quite a spiritual heritage, right? That's pretty incredible. This is where Joseph is at in the uh, patriarchal, the, the uh, family of the patriarchs uh, coming along. And um, Joseph's secret in Egypt is God. It's not his spiritual heritage. Gave him a good foundation, as we'll see in just a little bit. But his secret in Egypt is the presence of God. And this is what we see in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. Many of your translations say prosperous. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. The Lord was with Joseph. Yahweh was with Joseph. Joseph prospered. And when you do a Hebrew word study and you look at that, the, the, the biggest part of prospering happens internally. It happens in what God does in an individual's life. But then there are also material blessings. In fact, even in the Deuteronomic, uh, in the Mosaic Covenant, in Deuteronomy 28, we read that if you are obedient to God, you will receive these blessings. And many of them were material in nature. So Joseph, Joseph is receiving personal prospering because of God's relationship with him. And he's also receiving material gain, which we'll see as he uh, moves up the ladder in terms of the servants of Potiphar. His relationship with God is powerful, and it's going to be a major deterrent to temptation for him because God is present with him and because God is powerful in his life. I think you and I can identify with that because we all have temptations in some area that is nagging. It wants to be habitual. It's constantly there. And we can say, God, I need you every hour. 
I rely on you. It's his presence and his power, which is the strongest deterrent for resisting temptation. Well, Joseph is secure in who he is because of whose he is. Same principle applies to us. Our identity is in Christ. And so our security and our strength and our significance comes in him and through him. Joseph is experiencing this in an Old Testament way when it says that Yahweh is with him. Joseph's relationship with Yahweh then becomes apparent to Potiphar. We read this in verse 3. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. That's verse 3. How did Potiphar know? Did they have conversations uh, about Yahweh? Did Joseph talk to him? We don't know. Did, did Potiphar see Joseph kneeling in prayer three hours a day or three times a day like Daniel would centuries later? We don't know that. We do know from earlier chapters here in Genesis that Joseph's father, Jacob, had instructed him as part of the family in how to worship God. So that had become part of his training, part of his heritage. And so there must have been some form or fashion that Potiphar picked up on. Certainly, the attitudes and actions of Joseph must have been gracious, gentle, humble, forthright, good, must have been recognized by Potiphar as different and somehow identified with God. So Potiphar elevates Joseph from personal servant to household manager. And we see that in verse four. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. So Joseph is no longer part of that pool of servants. Now he's the personal servant and Potiphar made him overseer over his house and all that he owned, he put in his charge. Now, I don't know if that took place on the same uh, meeting with Potiphar. I'm sure it took place over a, a bit of time, but Joseph continued to prove himself. And Potiphar, who didn't really care what kind of God was involved, was just really happy. And he was smart enough to say, this God is doing things through Joseph, this deity. If you remember, the Egyptians had all kinds of local deities, all kinds of custom deities. They had Osiris, the God of the Nile. They had pharaohs, which were considered deities. So they had deities for everything. So it wouldn't be out of place for Potiphar to start looking at Joseph and saying, hey, you got something going on here and it must be related to your God. Potiphar elevates Joseph. He gives him the administration, the business decisions, leading of his staff, et cetera, et cetera. Potiphar's happy to have motivated servants and productive crops. And then we see in verse 5, it came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. Potiphar likes Joseph. He likes what he sees. He likes what Joseph is doing because it's because of Joseph's God. Maybe Joseph was sure to give God the glory and identify him as the one who is prospering Potiphar. 
But what God is doing is keeping his word. He told Abraham, the great-grandfather of Joseph, I will bless those who bless you. He has taken Joseph from slavery and elevated him to the highest role that he could have in his home and in his business dealings and in his agriculture. Everything about him, he's just handed over to Joseph and said, I'd like for you to, to run this. So clearly God's blessing is upon Joseph. And because of Potiphar's recognition, it's now upon Potiphar and his life. Joseph is in a great position. He's still a servant. He hasn't lost that. But his life is radically changed because of God's blessings, because of God being involved in his life, because he's cooperating with God. Think about the mental, emotional state that he was in when he was betrayed by his brothers, sold to slave, uh, slave traders, and then sold on the auction block in Egypt. That's incredible. And yet here he is, and God has gone before him and smoothed out the way. As a result, he has prospered. The household has prospered. What Joseph doesn't realize at the time is that Satan is going to take these blessings, this time of success, this time of prospering, and tempt him. Satan would like nothing better than to derail Joseph and destroy his testimony. He would like to derail God's plan for Joseph. He really doesn't care about Joseph. He'd just like to get back at God with one of God's people. And at the same time, God is testing Joseph. God is testing him for his loyalty for his obedience. He wants to see if he is a faithful servant, a man of faith, because God does have big plans for him. And he wants to make sure that if he's going to put him in a position of ruling a nation to help the Israelites, then God wants to make sure that he is capable, that he is committed to God, and that he is trained up in all these ways. And so we get a temptation and a testing at the same time here in the next few verses, verses 6 through 10, 6b through 10. And what we see is a God's faithful servant must resist temptation, especially if he's dedicated to the calling of God's work in his life. You and I, or at least I, haven't had dreams where God told me what my future looked like. He doesn't tend to deal like that right now, but he has told me in Psalm 139 that he's laid out the days of my life. He has told me in Ephesians 2.10 that he has equipped me to walk in the works that he has given me to do. He has a calling on my life. It is my responsibility to follow Jesus with a loving obedience, to be faithful to what he has called. Joseph must be faithful. He must resist temptation. Success and prospering can make us vulnerable to sin. We can get comfortable. We can get entitled. We see God's blessings. But when we're most successful, we're often the most vulnerable to temptation. And that's what happens to Joseph now. He is challenged in the midst of his prosperity. And before we go further, let me clarify just a little bit on temptation. Temptation is a, a solicitation or enticement to sin. And we're not going to spend a lot of time breaking that down, but we'll say this, that the temptation is common to all. Temptation in and of itself is not sin, okay? So that when you are tempted to sin, 
That is not sin. How you respond to the temptation determines whether it's sin or not. If you follow through and you choose to give in to the temptation, then that is sin. If you do not, then you have resisted temptation. You've been faithful to the Lord. Temptation is unique to each individual as well. We don't all face exactly the same types of temptation. Joseph gives us a model of resisting temptation with biblical principles. And I would say this, that he gives us a model of preparing ahead of time for temptation. A model of preparing ahead of time because he has biblical convictions. He has spirit-filled convictions, we can say in the New Testament. And so he is ready for temptation when it comes. We'll see that play out here. Well, it turns out that more than just Potiphar are very pleased with Joseph in the household. It turns out that Potiphar's wife has been eyeing Joseph as well, and she is very pleased with him. We get a little hint of what Joseph is like in the last part of verse 6 there. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. I'd love to hear what the message says, if anybody wants to call that out. I forgot to look that up. Basically, he is well-built and good-looking. And Potiphar's wife has her eye on him. She's lusting after him. She finds him appealing, and she might find him to be a challenge. We don't know what other motivations are going on. We don't know the dynamics of the home or the marriage. But we do know that we can say this, that her most obvious motive is sexual. And she is not subtle about it. She's going to be used of Satan to tempt Joseph. Potiphar's wife leads, no doubt, as to her intentions. Look at verse 7. It came about after these events that his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. Lie with me. Let's have sex. Joseph is hit with temptation, and he passes the test. In verse 8, we read this. But he refused. But he refused, and he said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. But he refused. That's how Joseph responds in verse 8 to Potiphar's wife. That's how he responds to Temptation, And I want you to consider that in light of his life and this season of life and the circumstances of his life, because I think that might help us think through some of the ways that we approach sin or we open ourselves up to temptation. I want you to consider this about his life, because I think the resistance is remarkable in view of different things. Number one, in view of his success, things are going great. And when things are going great, we tend to take our foot off the throttle, right? We, we're not as aware, not as alert, and not as ready to fight temptation because things are great. Let, let's just go with it. Sometimes that happens. In view of, uh, of the unholy trinity, I always have to throw this in, the world system, we, I, I talked about in the beginning that uh, our, our culture of sex has immersed us and pointed us in a direction against uh, God's will for our lives. Well, Egypt certainly was no better. 
no different than ours. It was a culture rampant in sexuality. So Joseph is living in this culture. Potiphar's wife is living in that culture. Potiphar, all the servants are in that culture. That's the environment, the world system in which he's living. The, the second member of the unholy trinity is Satan. He wants to derail say, uh, Joseph's testimony and, and God's plan. And then, of course, the third member is the flesh. And here we have Joseph, who was about 17, 18, when he was sold by his brothers. Right now, he's probably in his early 20s. So he's a single young man, and he's got his own passions. In view of the home environment, think about the rationalizations he could have come up with. No one would know. He might lose his job. She's my superior. She's on a level with Potiphar. I've got to obey her. Could have come up with all kinds of things in that home environment. In view of her persistence, in verse 10, we read that she came after him day after day. This was now a one-time event. In view of his overall emotional state, Joseph came from a dysfunctional family. He was betrayed by his brothers. He was sold as a slave. I've covered all of that already. His mental emotional state was such that many of us get into and give into temptation. Why? Because we want comfort. We think this will do it. Because we had a little pity party going on. We think this will make us feel better. And so we turn to temptation. Joseph did not do that. And then in view of his limited spiritual background, I think that Jacob taught him some things in terms of worshiping God and where his allegiance should be. But think about this. The Ten Commandments are still 400 years off into the future. He doesn't know about don't commit adultery, don't covet your, husband, your, your neighbor's wife. In view of all of that, I think it's remarkable that Joseph resisted temptation, and I think it really highlights the reasons that he did. And it calls us to have, to prepare with biblical convictions. Joseph did not rationalize, he didn't compartmentalize, he didn't compromise. He did not possess all the spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus that we possess. So how did he resist temptation? Well, we find the answer in verse 9. And read this. There is no one greater in this house than I. Joseph's talking to Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Joseph resisted temptation. We're given two reasons here in verse 9. First one is that Joseph is loyal to his boss. He chose not to violate the trust that Potiphar had placed in him, not to ruin this relationship, not to destroy a marriage. Potiphar trusted Joseph completely. And so Joseph maintains his testimony as salt and light. And he even lectures Potiphar's wife. You are his wife. This would be wrong. It would be great evil. It'd be wicked. The second reason we're given is because Joseph was loyal to God. How could I do this great evil, great wickedness, and sin against God? Joseph's allegiance to God would not allow him to disobey God. Here he is. In light of all his circumstances, this temptation is thrown at him. 
Lots of reasons to go with it. Lots of reasons to choose to sin, and he doesn't. And his words are so strong and powerful. He has a proper view of sin that it is evil in the eyes of God. That to choose to sin, even in a small way, even in a way that people wouldn't know, would still be against God. Even though this could destroy a marriage and be against Potiphar and his wife, it's still against God. We see that throughout Scripture. Joseph resisted temptation with strong biblical convictions that were in place before he faced that temptation. He didn't listen to her day after day and then sit down in the corner and try to pull out his notes from his dad's study with him as a child about worshiping God. No, that that had become internal to who he was. He'd internalized that this was his God. And he was going to choose to be allegiant to him, to be loyal to him. And that was going to play out in his decisions and his attitudes and how he went about his life. Most temptations come along as sort of a pop quiz in life. You can't prepare directly for them, but you can prepare beforehand by understanding God's word, building your convictions on them, and then just stacking them up. Well, you know the rest of the story Joseph is faithful to God. He's faithful to Potiphar. Potiphar's wife grabs him one day to take hold of him, and and he flees, and she's left with his coat. And for the second time in his life, a coat will be used with great deceit to try and destroy his life. And so she falsely accuses him before the members of the household of, of the servants there. And then she falsely accuses him before Potiphar, chief of executioners, easily a time to execute someone when they've been accused of pursuing your wife. But he doesn't. We don't know what his relationship was like with his wife, but I think it's because he saw God's hand on Joseph, and certainly it's because God protected Joseph. Joseph goes to prison as if life isn't unfair enough. He's there for a few years, has some more dreams, and he's let out. But we're told that even in prison, he rises to the top and is a servant. Why? Because the Lord is with him. It's interesting that in all the life of Joseph, I think there's about uh, 13 chapters of his life in Genesis. Eight times in this chapter, we're told that Yahweh was with him. We're not told that anywhere else. And I think that elevates that as one of the reasons why we resist temptation, because God is present with us, because his power is resident within us, because he is willing to help us in the midst of temptation. Well, Satan had tried to derail Joseph from God's plan, and he was resisted by Joseph. God had tested Joseph and found him faithful, further equipping him to lead the nation. As we consider our own preparation for temptation, I suggest an acronym to you. It was inspired by Matt. I think, Matt, you had a couple of them recently, back to back. So I want to give you an acronym, RESIST, R-E-S-I-S-T. As we think about building up biblical, spirit-filled convictions, 
And the first one would be the R, be resolved to take the faithful way of obedience. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 is in a passage actually referring back to Moses and the Old Testament and what we learned from it. But in that passage, Paul says, take heed lest you fall. When we are successful and prosperous and we feel God's presence, we are most often vulnerable to temptation. And so take heed lest you fall. Make that, be resolved, make that choice that I will be faithful. I will choose the obedient way whenever it comes. Secondly, the E is to be empowered by God's presence. Matthew 28, 20, Hebrews 13, 5, we're remembered, reminded that Jesus with us everywhere, forever. Let his presence and his power be a strong deterrent in resisting temptation. The S, be stirred by God's grace. Let your motivation to resist temptation be God's love and grace. We're told in Titus 2, 11 to 14, that because of the grace of God, we've been chosen that we might be zealous, saying no to ungodliness and faithful to following Jesus Christ. We could put Romans 12, 1 and 2 in there. Don't be conformed to the world, be transformed. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Be stirred by God's grace. Reflect on that just as we did in communion today. The I, be instructed by God's word. So many passages that, that deal directly with sins. And so if you're dealing with a specific sin, it's a great thing to, to put down a passage of scripture about that sin on a note card and carry it around. Meditate on it. Be ready for that sin. But there's plenty of scriptures that tell us how to be prepared for temptation as well. And then S again, be secure in God's calling, knowing that he has prepared a way for you, that he has a plan and a future for you that includes serving him in specific ways. Let him prepare you now. Show yourself faithful as you're tested in obedience. And then T, take the way of escape, Romans, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithful. He always provides a way of escape. That's a great verse to meditate upon because we often refuse the way of escape. That's the first thing we do before we give in to temptation. Give thought to that, to trusting God, to take the way that he gives us to move away. God is faithful to give us a way of escape. Prepare for temptation by building your biblical convictions now. We can resist temptation with spirit-filled biblical convictions. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we are amazed that here in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, that you've got somebody that we can identify with so completely. And, and I recognize that there are so many dynamics and so many deeper things about temptation, but we thank you, Lord, for giving us a clear illustration of how one individual dealt with it. And we ask for the grace, the strength. We ask that your grace would be sufficient to sustain us in the midst of temptation and that you would start us on a new trajectory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand up with us?
Yeah.
be glad. Thank you guys for being with us today. Have a great